Good morning, brothers and sisters. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. So I wanted to begin um, the sermon this morning uh, with a bit of a, an announcement that not all of you are aware of. This summer, Sean Kane, is Sean Kane here? Is he here? He'll probably be here. <clears throat> Is he, at, is he at the InterVarsity Discipleship Week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, Sean Kane, um, uh, some of you guys know that he is going to be serving as a ministry apprentice at this church for 10 weeks this summer. So, you remember last summer we had some interns helping out. And so, Sean will be helping us out this summer and running Alpha and even doing a bit of preaching. And we're super excited to have Sean with us this summer. And uh, I actually asked Sean if it was all right if I shared a personal story about him this morning. I did call him and ask him about this. He said, go for it. So um, the way I, I want to tell you about the way that I got to know Sean a few years ago. Um, and it was through uh, Peter Labar and Michelle Brodeur, who are both uh, on InterVarsity staff. They work discipling college students uh, at Florida State and FAMU and TCC. And Right now, they're all away, um, as are many of our students uh, at a discipleship camp there um, that, that goes on every summer. And um, some of you know that I used to work as a campus minister with InterVarsity, and then after I did that for a while, I began um, training and coaching new InterVarsity staff. So back a few years ago, I was having a weekly coaching meeting with Peter Labar. Um, it was his first year on staff, and I was just touching base with him and giving him some training and stuff like that. And... Uh, he kept telling me about this guy that he met named Sean. He's like, I love this guy. He's a really great guy. He's bold. He's gifted. He seems to genuinely just love Jesus. But there was a problem. At the time, um, Sean had only recently come to faith, and he was attending a very odd church. Um, you might even categorize it uh, as sort of like a cult. Um, Sean just walked in, and he, he agrees with that. The church denied um, the historic teachings of the Trinity and the Nicene Creed that so well uh, uh, summarized the scriptures. And they also claimed that you had to be baptized in their church to be saved. And so this was some pretty serious stuff. And eventually, through the influence of Peter and Michelle, Sean would change his mind about the Trinity and would leave that wayward church. Because the church had been trying to convince him that Peter and Michelle weren't real Christians. But the more that Sean hung out with Peter and Michelle, the more he said, man, I can't deny that these people know the Lord. Like, if I know anything about God, I know that these people know God. And so his, his, um, uh, the, the, this kind of young faith that he had that was sort of being nurtured in the wrong sort of way by this church began to crumble because he couldn't deny the presence of the Holy Spirit in these two young saints. Now, the cool thing is, it's a great story of redemption because now Sean is on voluntary uh, staff with uh, volunteer staff with InterVarsity and has been faithfully serving alongside Peter and Michelle for several years, discipling students and leading many students to Christ for the first time, which is amazing. And I'm glad we're going to have him here this morning. Now, as I mentioned, I, I wanted to share the story this morning because it actually reminds me a little bit of the story of Apollos here in Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Can you turn there with me? To Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Somebody can let us know the page number when you get there. 
9.27. Now, as you know, we've been preaching through the book of Acts, and this morning we're actually skipping ahead a little bit. We're skipping a little bit of stuff. Um, we're going to be finishing Acts in the next um, five or six weeks. And um, this morning we're going to be skipping ahead to Paul's third missionary journey. And through Apollos, we're going to learn an important truth, that, that not everybody who knows Jesus has mature theology, right? Not everybody who knows Jesus has all their theological I's dotted and all their theological T's crossed. So starting in verse 24, we learn that Apollos, he was ethnically Jewish, and he was a native of Alexandria. Now, Alexandria was and still is located in northern Africa along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It was named after its founder, Alexander the Great. And Alexandria was the second most important city in the Roman Empire. It was sort of an intellectual hub at the time. They had this great, beautiful, ancient library. And many of the um, church's earliest, uh, most prominent um, theologians ended up coming out of Alexandria. Now, evidently, Apollos fit right into this intellectual environment. Uh, it says in verse 24 that he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Furthermore, it says he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, that is, in the way of the Lord Jesus. And it says he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And that means that based on what he had been taught, based on his limited knowledge, he spoke without error. But we go on to learn that his knowledge was incomplete in some important ways. He may have heard about Jesus' life and teaching, but verse 26 says that he only knew the baptism of John. In other words, he had never even received Christian baptism in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. So it's, I think, unlikely that Apollos um, knew about the Great Commission or about the ascension of Jesus or about... Um, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So although Apollos was a gifted teacher, um, it says he spoke boldly in the synagogue. Nevertheless, his ministry was hindered by his incomplete grasp of the truth. Now I ask you, have you ever met somebody who is gifted in ministry, but there are some sort of foundational issues of truth or maturity um, that, that's really lacking there? I think if we ask ourselves, you know, what should we do in this situa situation? Should we just dismiss them or reject them altogether? Tell them they're not called to ministry? Well, I'm thankful that's not what Paul's missionary companions Priscilla and Aquila do here. Where others might have only seen a heretic or a competitor, they saw an opportunity to pour into a young leader for the sake of the gospel. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And they thought... Man, this guy could be a laborer. This guy could be a valuable um, witness in the kingdom of God. It says in verse 26 that when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, and, and no doubt heard what was lacking in his knowledge, it says they took him aside. The Greek word is proslambano, which implies that they, they took him aside privately. They didn't try to rebuke him publicly in front of the whole synagogue. And it says, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So in other words, they gave him like a bit of a seminary education. here. They catechized him, we might say. And apparently Apollos received it well because they ended up sending him off to minister in Corinth, uh, and, uh, where they had only recently helped to plant a church alongside the Apostle Paul. And they even 
sent him forward with a letter of commendation. They said, this guy is, is one of us. Listen to him. He's an important minister of the gospel. He can help you guys out. Now, I just want to say this morning that there are, there's, there's an extraordinary amount of gifted leaders in this church. Um, that, I mean, man, this church, um, there's not many ways in which we're rich as a church, but we're certainly rich in people and in young leaders and in just competent, gifted ministers of the gospel. And um, I, I just want to say... Um, that we should never shy away from saying, hey, is, it, is there a way that I could learn the way of God more accurately? That it's important for people to stay humble, especially people who are in ministry. Because perhaps like Apollos, you're gifted and you already know much. Maybe you know the four Gospels really well. Or maybe, maybe you've spent a lot of time studying the book of Romans. But I want to encourage you not just to sort of hang up your hat and rest on what you already know. Go deeper. Right? Push further. Sharpen your thinking. Correct your errors. And like Apollos, you'll become that much more useful in the kingdom of God. I think a lot of times we come to the Bible like we come to um, a yearbook. We look for everywhere where we can find our own picture. <laughs> it's like, I see myself in the background there. I see this. I see that. We, we, we open the Bible and we want to know what we already know. Right? We want to kind of find those spots. Oh, I feel comfortable when somebody's saying that. What the heck is he talking about? Skipping past that? Okay, I see more of myself here. Okay, that's good. I feel more comfortable now. <laughs> but Apollos was willing to devote himself to learning the truth more accurately. And that helped him to have a bigger impact when he went to Corinth. Verse 27 says, When he arrived, he greatly helped those through who through grace had believed. Actually, Apollos was so effective, uh, and the Corinthians were so, um, we might say, famously wayward, that they began identifying with Apollos instead of Paul. And a sort of leadership cult began to develop, and Paul would later have to write to the Corinthians to correct their unhealthy fixation on earthly leaders. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5-7, through 7, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? He says, only servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So he says, don't, don't focus on just the leader. He says, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now before I leave this section, I want to sort of head down a brief little cul-de-sac and make one more point about the role of women in missions and ministry. Because I think when we read Acts 18, it's clear that Priscilla took an active part in the teaching ministry of the church, even, it seems, in the instruction of this important missionary, Apollos. Amen? You see this, right? Some interpreters, of course, will qualify these points, noting that Priscilla's teaching ministry was exercised in a private setting rather than in public, and it was done in partnership with her husband. But on the other hand, if we're reading closely, we'll notice contrary to common custom, Priscilla's name is actually listed first before her husband Aquila, which may be an indication that she became the more famous of the two as time went on. For example, in the beginning of the book of Acts, Barnabas is always listed before Paul. But as time goes on and Paul's fame grows, 
Paul begins to be listed before Barnabas. Likewise, perhaps, though we can only guess, Priscilla had more gifts and aptitude for ministry and teaching and missionary work than Aquila did. It's very, very possible. I've seen married couples like that before, have you? Um, and how can we, I, I want to ask, how can we apply this picture of early mission work in the church today, particularly in what it says about the role of women in ministry? And I think a faithful interpretation of a passage like this requires some subtlety. Because oftentimes we get to these controversial issues in the Bible, especially on topics of gender and human sexuality, and I see Christians sort of picking and choosing the passages that they like and like conveniently ignoring the ones that they don't. Right? But we mustn't do this, brothers and sisters. Because when we become the judges of the Word of God by our own sensibilities, then our own sensibilities have become the authority and replace the authority of the Word of God. And that's why at the time of the Reformation, the Anglican Church declared in the 39 Articles that it, quote, is not lawful for the Church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's Word written, neither may it so expound one place of Scripture that it be repugnant to another. So that, that's, this, is, this is something that John and I are bound to. We're not allowed to, and for good reason, expound one place of Scripture so that it's repugnant to another. So sometimes people will come to this passage, like a passage like Priscilla and Aquila, which is very empowering for women, and indeed it is. But that doesn't mean that we sort of grab hold of that and say, and I don't want to listen to anything to the contrary. Right? So on the other hand, this passage should not be viewed as a contradiction to the many other passages in the New and Old Testament that emphasize God, the God-given call on men to be leaders in the church and in the household. If you don't agree with me, I point you to Genesis 2, 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 2, and to Jesus himself who chose 12 men to form the core leadership of the early church. So if our churches, our homes are falling into dysfunction, then I believe the first question that God would ask is, where are you, Adam? Where are you? On the other hand, hang with me now, 21st century Americans. <laughs> it's clear, I believe, from passages like these, as well as others like Romans 16, that women were much more involved in the mission of the early church, even in teaching and leadership, than we usually give it credit for. So there were women teachers. There were women missionaries. There were women who hosted house church meetings, widows and virgins devoted to prayer and caring for the poor, and I believe women serving as deaconesses. So are you married to a gifted woman, maybe even a woman who tends to outshine you in the presence of others? Yes. <laughs> I encourage you, brother, not to resist it. Humble yourself and let her shine brightly. Make much of her who makes much of Christ. Amen. Bishop Neal will always tell you, if he ever talks about teaching on a retreat with his wife, Marcia, which they do commonly, she always outshines him. They always want to hear more from Marcia. She's just such a good storyteller. She's such a great teacher of the word. And they're a great partner. They're great partners, but Bishop Neal will tell you honestly, she always outshines me. And he says that with joy. Also, the ministry of single women should not be forgotten. 
Indeed, at Incarnation, we have two single women right now serving as overseas missionaries, blessing children and women in the mission field who have been forgotten. There are two more women in this congregation that are devoted to a life of ministry, discipling students on campus as InterVarsity staff, as, many, as well as many others of you who are in ministry in this church around the city. And passages like this remind us not to get jealous, not to block the gift of God in one another, but to fan and to flame the gifts of, of, of ministry that women have, that they should be nurtured and celebrated in the church now as they were then. All right. Pulling back away from the cul-de-sac, back on the main track. All right. So we've noticed that Apollos, through Apollos, that not everyone who knows Jesus necessarily has mature theology yet. You don't expect that right out of the gate. And oftentimes there are seasons where we really need to be instructed, where we need to go deeper. Then we went down this cul-de-sac on women in ministry. Now we move to Acts 19 and we learn another important truth. That not everyone who uses the name of Jesus truly knows him. <clears throat> and we learn this through, um, excuse me, we learn this through um, Paul's meeting with some disciples of John the Baptist, as well as through um, this striking story of these amateur exorcists who try to use Jesus' name without knowing him. Now, I'm not going to actually spend time in that passage this morning, partially because I talked about exorcism, you know, I think last time that I preached, you know, and I, <clears throat> we're not doing a series on exorcism, because <laughs> um, I don't know enough. <clears throat> um, now, um, I, I, I think, but I, I do think it's important to say that not everybody who uses the name of Jesus truly knows him. Just as true as it is the case that not everybody who knows him has mature theology, you know, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, <clears throat> but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What does it mean to truly know Jesus? <clears throat> or to ask it another way, what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be saved? Or to be a new creation in Christ? How are we, in the words of Colossians 1.13, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son? How does that transference happen? That's a crucial question. And I'll use the rest of our time this morning to answer it with care. <clears throat> Now, according to the book of Acts and the New Testament in general, there are four things that accompany genuine Christian conversion. Belief, number one. Repentance, number two. Baptism, number three. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, number four. So, for example, flip back with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 37. And here Peter is preaching a sermon. The Holy Spirit has just fallen in Pentecost. Um, and uh, Peter's preaching a sermon, and it says that the crowds are, quote, cut to the heart, and they ask the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter answers this. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So there it is. It seems to be the order in this passage. Belief, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Spirit. I would say this tends to be the normal order of things throughout the New Testament. I mean, it's hard to care about repenting if you don't believe. 
at least a bit. And baptism is a sign and seal of, of both. Now, it's true to say that the activity of the Holy Spirit being like the wind, as Jesus says, is often more elusive than the other three. And properly understood, I think we would say that the Holy Spirit is at work at every single stage in the process of conversion. For example, it's true to say that the Holy Spirit always accompanies genuine faith. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the, in the Spirit. Nobody can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit. And so genuine faith is accompanied by the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's no such thing as a non-charismatic Christian, as Richard Foster says, because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you couldn't truly have faith in Jesus. So the Spirit is necessarily linked with authentic faith. But even before faith, the Holy Spirit is at work in those who are called. It's the Holy Spirit who, Jesus says, convinces the world of sin. It's the Holy Spirit that causes the Word to cut to the heart, as it did to the crowds in Acts 2. And only this leads to genuine repentance. Interestingly, in Luke 1.15, the angel Gabriel prophesied that John the Baptist would be, quote, filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And I believe this still happens today. I believe that there are babies that are full of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> what about the connection between the Holy Spirit and baptism? Again, I don't think the scriptures give a neat and tidy answer when it comes to that. Sometimes the Spirit is portrayed as filling the believer before baptism, as is the case um, with Cornelius' conversion and his, his friends and household at the end of Acts 10. Sometimes it happens in conjunction with baptism. That seems to be what happened um, uh, at Jesus' baptism, right? He's baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. Sometimes it seems to happen after baptism, specifically through the laying on of hands. We see that in Acts 8. We see that in Acts 19 in our passage today. Um, oftentimes, like in those two passages, there's very, very specific circumstances surrounding that. Um, so what do, we, um, what do we make of this connection between the Holy Spirit and baptism? Many people, I think, zoom in on one or, other, one or another of these examples in, uh, of the Holy Spirit coming before or during or after baptism and say, there it is. That's how it always works with the Holy Spirit. And then if they're trying to lead you to Christ, they try to lead you down a pathway where all these things are supposed to happen in this perfect order like this. And if it doesn't quite fit, they're going to cram you like a square peg into a round hole or try to. <clears throat> For example, someone might latch on to a story like the one here in Acts 19, 1-7, and treat it as the norm for all believers, even though it has many elements that are unique and unrepeatable. Right? What Paul, when Paul meets the disciples of John in Ephesus, it says they had not even, quote, heard of the Holy Spirit, and they only knew the baptism of John. In some sense, this passage is seeking to answer a first century question that's no longer relevant for us today. Uh, is it enough for someone to be a disciple of John, who was a forerunner of Jesus, and to not really know or have responded to the gospel of Jesus itself? Is that enough? Is that okay? Um, this is something that the first century church needed to have clarified because they knew that Jesus walked closely with John, that there was a close tie between the two. 
And the answer, according to the book of Acts, is no. It's not enough to know the best man without knowing the bridegroom. So Paul says to them in verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who would come after him. John is telling you guys, you have to believe in Jesus, he says, right? That is Jesus. He reminds them that John is pointing forward. In verses 5 and 6, he continues. He says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Again, this conversion story should not be universalized. While most conversion stories in the New Testament don't include tongues and prophesying, Paul's didn't, for example, um, here the tongues and the prophesying served as an outward and visible sign that these former disciples of John had been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son and that that transference was actually necessary. There was an important spiritual exchange that happened, and the Holy Spirit wanted to make sure that the early church didn't miss it. So this diversity of the Spirit's activity led one scholar to warn, we must be careful not to create a system that does not hold good in all cases. And that's what we commonly do. Because after all, the Spirit is the Spirit of God. Right? And we don't control God. <laughs> All right, let's summarize. And then I want to linger a bit on these four marks of conversion that we talked about. So we read the story of Apollos. We noticed two things. First, that not everyone who knows Jesus has mature theology. Apollos didn't. But he was humble enough to keep learning and growing in his faith so that he might become more useful to the flock of God. And second, through Priscilla, we learn that women had an important place in the mission of God from the beginning, continued down through the ages. Oftentimes, I think the church has had less of an emphasis on the role of women down through history than it did in this first generation. So we need to recover. We need to go back to that. Women, the place of women in the body of Christ needs to be lifted up and honored. And then when we move to chapter 19, we learned another truth, that not everyone who uses the name of Jesus truly knows him. And we talked about four marks of genuine conversion. Number one, belief, repentance, baptism, and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I just want to ask you this morning, just to kind of take a little bit of a personal inventory. Have you experienced all these things? If not, what are you lacking? We shouldn't take our conversions for granted. We can't just say, well, my grandma knew Jesus. Or I grew up in church. Or I remember one time when I said a prayer at camp, even though I haven't been following Jesus since. Right? This is what we commonly do. But we need to take an inventory. Have we actually entered the kingdom? And I want you to ask yourselves this morning, have I believed? Have I believed? Have I repented? Have I been baptized and been filled with the Holy Spirit? Let's talk a little bit about each of these. To believe means to believe in the gospel. That Jesus died for your sins to make peace between you and God. And that he rose from the grave in order to give us victory from the grave and eternal life. If you've never confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you can do that this morning. You can do that anytime. 
The second thing was repentance. Repentance means turning away from our old life, from being our own king and loving the ways of the world and turning to God as our king and loving him above all else. That's what repentance is. It's a turning. It's a turning. It's a changing of our minds. Repentance is, it's not, it's not proper to think of it as like a work, like the work that's required for salvation. I think maybe a helpful image is it's a, it's a letting go of whatever else was in our hands so that we can receive from God the free gift of salvation. Right, so that our hands aren't cluttered with our other loves or our other idols. It's just, it's a surrender. It's like this waving of the, the white flag. But it's a beautiful surrender because it's a surrender to the lover of our souls. It might feel like doom at the time, I'm telling you. It feels like death. But then the one who comes in the room knows us and loves us better than we love ourselves, guys. And repentance is not something that we just do once It's not a one-time thing. We all fall back into sin. And so Jesus says we need to take up our cross daily. We confess and we repent daily and we return to faith daily and ask God to wash us anew and to set our orientation back on following Jesus. What about you? Have you ever repented of being your own king and made Jesus the king of your life? I just want to say as an example, because it might be any number of things for you, but when I first got into ministry, I remember um, I was at this discipleship camp that Peter and Michelle are at right now, and there were so many students who um, had profound sexual brokenness, um, had profoundly transgressed boundaries um, that the Lord, um, I know the Lord, grieved over. And I remember talking to um, a, uh, a mature experienced minister saying, you know, how can it be the case that so many of these um, young men and young women are in this place and they were really raised in a Christian household and stuff like that? And, uh, and he said, his theory was kind of interesting, and I, I've since thought, and I think there's some truth to this. He said he thinks that oftentimes the parents of these children have never truly repented of their own sexual brokenness from the past. So maybe they got married, but they never sort of went back and revisited and said, you know, what I learned about this from Hollywood, or even what I learned about this from my parents, or what I decided in my own mind was maybe the good, you know, this is an appropriate boundary, maybe this isn't, was not based on scripture. And they never went back and revisited that and said, you know, no, this is, this is wrong what we did. Mm-hmm. And maybe we're married now, and, and I, you know, I'm not saying that it's like dirty and all soiled and there's no you know, chance at cleanliness and redemption because of course Jesus can make us pure and clean and new but if we never go back and repent and never go back and revisit our thinking and change our minds then we haven't actually repented and that generational thing just continues to be passed passed along and we continue to say I don't really want to address that issue I haven't really wanted to address that issue for myself and so I don't really really want to address that issue with my kids I don't really want to be honest. I'd prefer to turn a blind eye to what's going on there. And what about baptism? If you've not been baptized, we can take care of that too. (laughs) We have a baptism service on Pentecost Sunday in a couple of weeks. And if you desire to be baptized, come talk to John and I after the service. 
Now, just to be clear, it's wrong to think of baptism as some kind of work which saves you, as if you could force conversion on someone who never had faith. Just get under the water! (laughs) And, uh, you know, we might find an occasional story in the Bible, uh, very occasional, like the thief on the cross who saved without being baptized. But generally speaking, the the New Testament knows of no such thing as unbaptized Christians. That was not even a thing in the church for like the first 1,800 years of Christian history. So in the New Testament, baptism is just simply viewed as a part of one's conversion. It's not superfluous or optional. Now you might ask, what about being filled by the Holy Spirit? As we've already said, the New Testament generally teaches that if you have genuine faith, that couldn't be the case unless you had the Holy Spirit, unless you were in Christ Uh, maybe a shorthand that we commonly will use is, do you have a relationship with God? Not just, do you believe these things, but is there a living relationship with an actual real being? Because if if there is, if that's there, that's the Holy Spirit. Right? (laughs) Um, And so, um, the, the Holy Spirit's not just an idea or like a theology. The Holy Spirit is a radiant reality. But if you're not sure that you have a living relationship with God, if the Holy Spirit is just sort of a foreign idea for you, I'm not talking about have you spoken in tongues or have you prophesied. Do you have a relationship with a God? If you don't, I want to encourage you in two ways. I want to encourage you this morning, you can believe. You can confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. In a moment, we're going to read the Nicene Creed. It's just a short confession of our faith. You can say that to God and say, this is what I believe. This is the truth that I stand on. This is to you. I'm confessing that I put my faith in Jesus. You could do that today. Also, I just wanted to encourage you. Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke that if we're lacking the Holy Spirit, we just have to ask him and he'll give it to us. He says that, you know, a good father knows how to give their kids good gifts. How much more is it going to be the case that if you ask him for the Holy Spirit, if you're like, man, I believe, I just never have felt, I just never have really felt like I have a relationship with God, like there's anything real there. I want to encourage you, we have prayer ministers in the back during communion every week. You can go and just do business with God. Say, I want to know you. I, I don't want this just to be ideas. I want to have a relationship with you. Ask the Holy Spirit to come into your life and make these doctrines set on fire from heaven. Right? That's what we all need. None of us are converted without the Holy Spirit. And so these four things, believe, repent, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. These are the things that we... These are, these, this is, this, these are the four marks of authentic Christian conversion. Amen. Amen.